Well, good morning, jolly and festive people. Good to see you. My name's Gary. I'm one of the pastors on the team, and I have the privilege of uh, jumping into this series we've been involved in called A Thrill of Hope. Uh, Hope is thrilling, isn't it? Aren't you looking forward to Christmas? How about this? Imagine how thrilling it will be when the Seahawks beat the Arizona Cardinals this afternoon. That's that's a thrill of hope. What about the fact that uh, last night was the longest night of the year, which means that days are getting longer now. That's another reason for hope. So hope is all around us. Those are just small examples to be sure. But uh, as Pastor Mike was speaking on this topic, he has said things to remind us that that hope means things like these. Hope means that God started something brand new by sending Jesus into this world. That's hope. He also mentioned that God has has had a plan for us all along. You know, the Bible says that in Ephesians 2, that Ephesians 1, from the, before the foundations of the world, God had a plan for us. And then thirdly, uh, he also mentioned how you know, often in the Old Testament, God is presented as lawgiver, and we think of God, many people do anyway, as being distant and removed, and he's just there kind of with a ruler in his hand, ready to slap us on the knuckles. When, when we realize the fuller story, as we move into the New Testament, that God is our loving Father, a very different view than a lot of people have understood in their earlier years. Now, I love Christmas. I, I literally grew up with Christmas every day of my life. Uh, my father was born in Mexico. His name is Christmas. And uh, it's, in Spanish, it sounds better than English, Navidad. And his middle name was Flores, which I guess means flowers. So we would call him Christmas flowers. He didn't really appreciate that too much. But, but uh, yeah, Navidad. But, you know, Christmas is fundamentally important because of what it represents in the Christian faith. It really is the other end of the bookend we know as Easter. Jesus, uh, the time of his death and his resurrection and ascension into heaven sometime after that. But Jesus being born, that's what we celebrate this coming week, is a recognition that God came into human history. And history is literally divided by Jesus' birth A New Testament scholar who I greatly admire named J.B. Phillips, he translated the New Testament, and uh, he wrote a lot about it, and he said, because of Jesus, Earth can be called the visited planet. It's really interesting. There are groups like SETI. I know Paul Allen funds SETI, the search for extraterrestrial beings. Well, uh, I find it fascinating that, as J.B. Phillips said, Earth has been visited by God himself. He goes on to say, belief in the incarnation, God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ, is at the heart of the Christian faith. And it's very interesting because when you look at the gospel in the New Testament, you never are called to have to believe in the the virgin birth, for example, the the idea that that, uh, Joseph and Mary did not have intimate relations before Jesus was born. You don't have to believe in that uh, to be a Christian, but... It's part of the historic doctrinal belief of evangelical churches that Jesus was virgin born. Why? Because this is a great mystery. And that's why the Bible often says Mary pondered these things in her heart that God took on human flesh, God in a bod, literally. 2,000 years ago, John wrote this The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's the story of Christmas. 
As Jesus followers, we know the true meaning of Christmas gets drowned out by a variety of voices. There are many voices that drown it out. One, though, that we usually think of and often comes to mind is commercialism because, let's face it, uh, marketing goes on this time of year. It's like Thanksgiving doesn't exist. Have you noticed that? We go right from Halloween to Christmas, and uh, there's no time to stop and say thank you, perhaps. But, but commercialism, it just it, it kind of drives the day. And I remember growing up, I grew up in Chicago, and I worked downtown. And one of the great things to do in Chicago is, in those days was to go down State Street, and there was a great store, Marshall Fields Company. And, and they had these massive windows, and they would do these incredible dioramas in every window. They would do various scenes of, you know, snowmen and all kinds of things you think of at Christmas. And, and you'd walk along, and, and then there would be a nativity scene. Well, back in those days, I remember hearing the story. Two women were out shopping. They were walking by a store like Marshall Fields, and they went to window after window. Finally, they came to a window that had a nativity scene in it. And one of the ladies started wagging her head to her friend, and she said, can you imagine? What a shame. Now they're even trying to bring religion into Christmas. Imagine that. I don't know if you happen to see an article. It it appeared in several uh, magazines in recent weeks about a little seven-year-old Canadian boy named Homer Mellon. And Homer wrote a note, and here's an image of the actual note. He wrote this back in, in that day, and And his family has treasured this note for 98 years to remind them that Christmas is about more than just the buying of gifts. It was a simpler time. And here's the note little Homer wrote. Dear Santa Claus, will you please send me a box of paints, also a nine-cent reader, and a school bag to put them in? And if you have any nuts or candy or toys to spare, would you kindly send me some? Then he ends it this way. You will please a seven-year-old boy. Well, his no-frills request looks a little different than what most of our Christmas trees look like this time of year, do they not? With all the gifts unwrapped under the tree and a very different picture of a simpler day. Uh, But this story is perhaps even more revealing. It's captured on a video, so take a look at this little video clip. of that clip. Yeah, we teach them young, don't we? Well, even though we know consumerism is an issue, and we try to combat that here at Overlake, and if you were here on the previous series Pastor Mike did, it was entitled Less Stuff and More Life. And I think all of us have come to understand that uh, a lot of the things we receive are certainly way beyond what we would ever need. And so this year, once again, we're encouraging you to re-gift. And so if you get gifts this Christmas that you either can't use or you have one of and you don't need another one, we'd encourage you, re-gift it, bring it to church, and we will see that it gets in the hands of someone that could really appreciate it and use it. But as much as we can rag on consumers, and that really isn't the only problem. It isn't even really the main problem. I mean, really the issue is, as the saying goes, truth is the first casualty of war. And I can't imagine any area where uh, there has been more bad press and misunderstanding than about Jesus and who he is. Uh, Every year, major news magazines, especially around Easter, come out with, who was this Jesus? But you notice, this is the fascinating thing. You can use God's name today in a generic way, It's okay to talk about God, but the minute you say Jesus Christ, it generates a different reaction. And that's because Jesus made certain truth claims. That Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
is claims are exclusive. And the minute those claims become exclusive, people are now forced into a decision. Do I believe Jesus is who he said he was or not? And as the old saying goes, to decide not to decide is to decide. And so there's this uncomfortable element, this reality that Jesus is the one that pushes on all of us to make a decision about his identity. I mean, you can accept him or reject him, but you can't do nothing with him. Throughout this series, we've been looking at the role of hope in our lives. And I I would just say to you this morning, uh, I followed Jesus for more than 50 years. And the reason is hope. The reason is when I look at his story, when I look at his life, and I look at the reality of my own experience or the experience I see in the world, I go, that makes sense to me. It makes good sense to me. So I would say, first of all, if you're taking notes, what Jesus provides is hope for the hopeless. Legitimate hope, legitimate hope as opposed to false hope, legitimate hope says life matters. It says that your life has meaning. It promises life has purpose. And all research supports this. The minute hope fades, all is lost. And I can tell you as a pastor, having been in many hospital rooms, and you're with people that are toward the end of their life, and you see a lot of times that hope begins to fade as they move toward the end, and they know that they're moving on to life beyond. Or even more so, the difference between Christian funerals and non-believing funerals that I've been to, one where there's hope. Yes, there's grief, there's pain, there's, there's a lot of question. A lot of you have been wrestling with that this year because you've seen the loss of loved ones. And the Bible says we grieve, but not as those without hope. But you go on the other side of the equation, I'll tell you the most depressing, discouraging experiences. I mean, one time when I was pastoring in Minnesota, I was asked by a a member of our congregation who happened to be uh, in that business. He was a mortician, and I agreed to do funerals when there weren't pastors available to do them. And I prepared to go and do a funeral. He asked me to go, and I went there, and there was one person there. And so rather than stand behind a podium, I pulled up a chair and sat next to her. It turns out the woman that died was her aunt, and I said, tell me about her. She said, well, none of us liked her. (laughs) She didn't even like her, but she came. I mean, those are depressing things to experience. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist in survival of the Holocaust. He was in Nazi death camps from 1942 to 1945. As a Jew, his mother, his father, and his pregnant wife were all killed by the Nazis. After he got out of these camps, he was a survivor, obviously, He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It was required reading when I was in college. And in it, he made observations of what he saw and what he experienced as he looked at the psychological stages that prisoners went through. And what stood out to him was the difference between survivors who had gone through the brutal experience and those that died was every survivor held one thing in common, and that was hope. They held on to the belief that somehow they would one day be released or they would somehow be reunited with their loved ones. And that kept them motivated to live. He went on and developed a psychiatric theory called logotherapy, which I found interesting because logos is a Greek word. It means meaning. It means to find meaning in life is what keeps a person motivated. Unlike Freud, who taught pleasure was the main principle, he said meaning is the main thing. I think of another psychologist. He interviewed 3,000 people. He asked them this question. uh, What are you living for? 
He was shocked by the response. 94% of the respondents said, we're simply enduring the present while waiting for the future. Well, life can only be lived today. And while they no doubt had dreams about their future, they were in effect living their lives on hold, which leads to uncertainty and boredom and despair, confusion. My wife and I, uh, we married a little later in life, and we both spent years in the single adult world, and I would speak at conferences, she would speak at conferences, sometimes we would do it together, other times we would do kind of a tag team, and I, I remember when, when she's speaking, one of, the, one of those examples she would use, kind of a standard encouragement to a room filled with singles, some of whom had never been married and were, were just longing and pining for that right person to come along to others that had gone through painful divorces or were widowed, and, and the desperation that sometimes can be reflected in those situations. I remember one time, really several times that she was speaking, she would say this, you should live life to the fullness that God has given to you. If you learn today that Mr. or Mrs. Wright wouldn't come along for five years, you wouldn't even know them for five years, how would you live your life differently? And it was like you turned a light on in the room. How many of us here today are living life on hold, waiting for something else to happen, too busy putting our life on hold to be engaged in the life God's given us? John 1 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's that word logo, logos, the one that Viktor Frankl used to describe a therapy. The word logos means reason or explanation. Literally, it means all of the meaning that stands behind the universe. And you can go back in Greek history, five, six centuries before Jesus, and they talked about logos and the fact that maybe one day a logos would come to the world. Isn't it interesting? The Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. It literally means Jesus and God looked at each other face to face. It's it's an elegant way of saying Jesus and God are one. Jesus is the glue that holds it all together. Colossians 1.16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created Through him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, that's what hope is all about. Hope is not for the faint of heart. In the Old Testament in particular, hope meant waiting and looking forward to the possibility, the promise of a Messiah coming. In our day, we know that Jesus came, and we have hope. It's a different flavored hope. But in the New Testament, hope takes on a different shade of meaning. Hope in the New Testament, now that Jesus has come, it means hope that is patient and disciplined and confident and forward-looking. But notice what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean there is no pain and there is no suffering. As believers, yes, we know Jesus came. We believe the truth of his promises, but we're not immune from the realities of life, the challenges, the difficulties, the pain, the sting of our mortality. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. I've heard it said that a person can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only about one second without hope. Now, literally, obviously, that isn't the case, but the point is well made. 
If you understand the centrality of hope and the hope that Jesus brings this Christmas, it will revolutionize your life because hope is what keeps us pressing on. I want to show a clip from the movie Hunger Games. Take a look at this little riff on hope. Seneca, why do you think we have a winner? What do you mean? I mean, why do we have a winner? Hope. 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 It is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. A spark is fine, as long as it's contained. So... So... contain it. Now, that's a great clip. I don't know if it'll ever catch fire. But it might. Did you catch that line, though? A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. Do you realize Christianity is a dangerous faith? When you could travel the world and infuse hope into people, that's the stuff of revolution. Not just individually, but nationally. But if you take away hope, you've taken away everything from a person. Once in a while I get emails or have conversations with people who say things like, I'm not sure what I believe anymore. Or I'm not even sure I believe in God at all. And you know, I get that. I've heard that from people that have followed Jesus for a long time. We face tough, disappointing times in life. If we don't understand the reality of our faith and what we battle against in this world and the reality of our mortality, we will end up with questions that press in on us like that. But I think it's great, though, that we have to press into our faith on occasion because, you see, if we don't press in on our faith, we don't know how real it is. And one of the challenges I see is so many of us come to faith when we're young and we come to faith as children and we never grow spiritually. All of a sudden, we're living in an adult world with a child's level of understanding and it doesn't hold up. That's why we have to keep growing spiritually. But Christmas is a great time to reassess what you believe spiritually, to reconsider what you believe and why. And so I want to challenge you this morning, whether you're a Christian believer and you claim Jesus and you have confidence in him, or you're a non-believer, you don't really buy into this, you're not really, or you're not really sure about it, I want to press into you for a moment, because I've discovered that whether we believe or don't believe, most of us go a long time, many years oftentimes, if not longer, without anyone challenging our faith and what we believe or don't believe. The late Chuck Colson uh, tells a story I want to share with you, and I'll just mention, I had the privilege several times of spending time with Chuck Colson, one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. For those of you who don't, don't know who he was, he was a special counselor to President Nixon during Watergate. He ended up going to prison for his uh, involvement in the Watergate affair. During that time, before he was sent to prison, a godly friend of his had been sharing faith with him, and he came to faith before he went to prison, came out, launched a ministry called Prison Fellowship. A massive intellect, a constitutional lawyer, absolutely brilliant. One of the most brilliant people I've ever met. He was at a governor's prayer breakfast because of his past connections to D.C. and his continued political connections. He said, I was sitting next to an impressive-looking man, and as I sat next to him, the man promptly leaned over and warned me, uh, I'm an atheist. 
Undeterred, Colson replied, well, I'm glad to be seated next to an atheist because I've never actually met an atheist. An atheist believes the existence of God can be disproved, so please tell me how you've done that. At that, the man looked concerned and said, well, perhaps, uh, perhaps I should say I'm an agnostic. That's a person that says, I don't know if he can believe in God or not. I don't know if he's real or not. And so Colson presses in again. Well, when did you give up studying about God? The man admitted he'd never really tried. You find this a lot, by the way. G.K. Chesterton, one of the great writers of a century ago, said this. He said, Christianity has not gone tried and wanting. It's largely gone untried. But Colson presses on. But an agnostic is one who says he doesn't think God can be known. And you can only be an agnostic if you try to know him and you've exhausted the search. Then with unexpected boldness, he said this. So I would say that while you appear to be very well educated as a person, you've made an unsupportable statement. A few weeks later, Colson received a copy of the editorial page from the state's largest newspaper. Turns out his companion was the editor of the paper. His lead auditorial explained how Colson had caused him to rethink the role of religion in life. He said, what struck me most was this challenge to my long-standing position on God that proved unsupportable. You see, since all basic presuppositions to say I believe in God is an act of faith, to say I don't believe in God is an act of faith. But there's more. Christ is not only hope for the hopeless, Christ is our living hope. At one time or another, maybe you've heard the saying, hoping against hope. I heard it a lot growing up. My mother used to say it all the time. It means to want something so badly you can taste it, even though the odds against ever attaining it seem possible. The phrase appears in Romans 4.18, and so I used the King James Version this morning because that's what I grew up with, and and it says this. Speaking of Abraham, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken. See, God promised Abraham when he was childless and old, one day your seed, your, your children, your grandchildren, they'll be as numerous as the stars in heaven. And Abraham was like, wow, I hope that's true. Man, I'm hoping against hope because the odds seem so against it. The stars of the sky? So just for fun, I googled the question. How many stars are there? Here's the answer that came back. Astronomers estimate there are about 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way alone. Outside of that, there are millions upon millions of galaxies. Oh, but oh, we're convinced we know there is no God and he doesn't exist. Really? Keep in mind, experts say that all the time, but experts just a combination of two words. X meaning former and spurt meaning drip. (laughs) So... Don't let your belief get shattered too quickly or too easily. The ancient Greeks had a metaphysical speculative view of death. They believed there was life after death, but it was uncertain and frightening. You might say they had hope with fingers crossed. I hope it's not as bad as I've heard. This is why Paul in Ephesians, remember Paul is writing primarily to a Roman and Greek audience. He says, therefore, and and he was the apostle to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, Remember that formerly you who are called Gentiles by birth and uncircumcised by the Jews, by those who call themselves the circumcision, 
which is that which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time, that is before they heard the gospel, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise. They didn't know these things. Then he says this, you were without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's us. Before Jesus came, the Jews had a similar sketchy view in the Old Testament. Like the Greeks, they thought life after death, the abode of the dead, was a, was a frightening place. It was called in Hebrew, Sheol. It was characterized by a never-ending state of dusk. It was dreary. There was no memory. There was no strength. There was no joy. It was always gray. Like Seattle. <laughs> kind of. How unlike the New Testament promise of hope. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Oh, there's that word, that phrase. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But you know, hope in the New Testament has content, meaning to it. So let me describe the three factors that shape hope in the New Testament. First is hope's content. Hope in the New Testament is never self-centered. It's never about me. That's why Rick Warren begins his book, It Isn't About You. It's always Christ-centered. It's always God-centered. It recognizes the beauty and benefit of spending an eternity with God. The basis of hope is this. It doesn't rely on our good deeds. I take a deep breath every day when I think about that. It isn't my goodness, it's not my actions that cause God to love me, for me to be in a relationship with him because of something I've done or not done. But God loves me because God is a God of love. God is a God of relationship. That's the core of Christmas. God's gracious work through Christ. Thirdly, though, hope's nature itself. Hope, astonishingly, is a free gift. I find it interesting knowing that that's a redundancy, free and gift. I mean, you're going to get gifts at Christmas. You're going to pull out your wallet and say, can I pay you? No. We all understand by its very nature a gift is free. It doesn't mean it's not costly. It just means it's a gift. What do you do with the gift? You reach out your hand, you receive it, and what do you say? Thank you. This is not a difficult message this message of hope in Christ. But it takes a lot of courage to admit that we need God in our life. That forestalls a lot of people. But there's a third reason that hope is so important to share this Christmas. Christmas is all about shared hope. That's what it's about. We're going to celebrate. In two days, we're going to gather here for three services. Thousands of people will come through these doors. Some coming because it's tradition. Many coming because of their desire for hope. Others coming because they know that Jesus is the hope and they want to come and celebrate that. Christmas is centered on hope. I came across a story not too long ago about uh, an experience that happened to a pastor while he was visiting his family. I'll retell it. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but not much. He says, I was visiting with my parents, and I went to get a haircut, after a, and I got into a long conversation with a guy named Jim. Jim and his wife, Pam, owned the shop. 
Turns out he was very interested in God, and when he found out I was a pastor, we had a long talk about faith, where God fits in and how you can know him. After I was done, I told my mom, who got, happened to get her hair done by this guy's wife, Pam, Mom, you should talk to her about God. She's really interested. My mom said, there's no way. I know a lot of their story. I know about a bunch of choices they've made. I know their lifestyle. They're about as far from God as any human being could ever be. Now, incidentally, step back a moment when I talk about Chuck Colson. My mentor met him years ago before he was a believer. After meeting him, he walked out of the room and said, even Jesus will never be able to reach that guy. So anyway, he says, uh, no, mom, you ought to talk to her. Trust me, I'm a professional. So the next time she visits a a shop and she's sitting in the chair, she says a little prayer. God, I'm not going to say anything about you to Pam. (laughs) That's her prayer. Give her prayer, prayer like that. God, I'm not going to say anything to Pam about you. I don't want to do this. I know she'll rebuff it, and I don't want to look like an idiot. I'm not going to say anything about you unless Pam gives me some very clear sign. Pam came up to my mom and said, Kathy, I understand you and your husband have a Bible study for couples that are interested in God. Would it be okay if Jim and I came to your study? He says, my mother took that as a sign and began the process of learning Pam's story. By the way, this is one of the massive ways evangelism has changed in recent decades. From us being talking heads to us being listening ears to people's stories. People describe God and you say, tell me about the God that you believe in. And they describe a God you've never heard of. And you say to them, I don't believe in that God either. And they're shocked. Because they don't understand the love and grace of God. Anyway, he goes on. He says, Pam was confused about the whole God thing growing up. One of her parents was a Catholic. The other was Jewish. When she was a little girl, one of them would take her to synagogue, and when she would get home, the other would make her say the rosary to ask forgiveness for going to the synagogue. So she wanted nothing to do with God. Home was kind of a mess. By the time she was 16, she could drink any guy under the table. By the time she was 21, she was married, and by the time Kathy met her, she had been married five times. She finally got so desperate, she joined AA, but as you know, When you join AA, you're supposed to turn your will and life over to a higher power, and she didn't want anything to do with God. But eventually, because someone listened to her story, took time to share hope with her, she learned about Jesus, and she gave her life to Jesus. And her story is a different story with a better ending. See, this is why it's so important that we take a risk to share with others. And I get how difficult it can be. We're not immune as pastors. But I would promise you, much like Kathy found out, if you pray a prayer this week and you even begin to say to God, Lord, who should I invite to Overlake on Tuesday night? And you honestly ask that question. I very much think I could guarantee you that God will bring someone to mind or someone across your path. You walk to the mailbox tomorrow, and there they are. And you go, who, is this the person? That's the Holy Spirit saying, that's a very clear sign. Yes, that's the person. And so the ability then to tell these people that we know and love about the greatest hope story ever told, about a God who came into this world and who lived a sinless life and went to a cross and died a death, voluntarily on our behalf that he would be a substitute 
for the sin in our life, what better gift could you give at Christmas or receive? The first Bible verse I learned as a new believer is a verse a lot of people learn is John 3.16. It's the easiest verse in the world to memorize and it's easy to forget because it becomes so familiar. So I want to invite you for just a moment. Just bow your head for a moment. Close your eyes. And I want you to listen to this verse again as if you're hearing it for the first time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Scholars call this the gospel in a nutshell. It's all that a person needs to know to believe. It's all they need to know to put their trust in Jesus, to admit their need for Jesus and say, by faith I receive you into my life. You can open your eyes. What better gift than that? In these next days, friends, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, all of these people in our world, this is the easiest ask of the year to come to Christmas service. I had a fun experience. Between services, I was talking to people, and, and a friend of mine came, came down the hallway with a cup of coffee, just kind of shuffling his way down the hall. And I go, man, I said, the only thing you're missing is your slippers. You seem so comfortable. And I love his response. He says, you know, that's how I feel at Overlake. Such a comfortable place. You know why we're like that? Because we believe the only barrier that should stand between people and hearing the love and grace of God, the only barrier ought to be, what do I do with Jesus Christ? So if you're walking faithfully with Jesus, odds are people already see something different in you. We were talking about this, some of us at a staff gathering today, uh, this week, just saying, you know, when you share Jesus with people, what's kind of your most common experience? And, and always it comes out of a context of relationship. Well, they usually end up saying something like, I, I saw something in you that's a little different, something in your faith or something in your belief system or the way you act. What is that? That's a beautiful way for it to happen. Let's not let the chance to offer hope to someone who desperately needs it this Christmas to slip away. If God prompts you, invite, invite. Would you bow your heads with me? And as our heads are bowed, I just want you to reconsider with me for a moment. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you put your faith in him, can you just thank God right now for the indescribable gift of Christ in your life? God loves to hear us say thank you, just like anyone who receives a gift and the one who gives the gift loves to hear that, that it's graciously received and received with joy. Just thank the Lord. If you would put yourself in the category of an atheist or an agnostic this morning, I would just say, really? Have you done the exhaustive research? Or is this something you just heard? Or do you just want to believe it because trusting in Jesus means a change of your lifestyle or your life? Be honest about that and trust God to reveal himself to you if you long for him to make himself known. So, Father God, we thank you this Christmas season as we look forward to celebrating together on Tuesday night the joy of your birth. We thank you, Lord, for your grace to us, for the gift of life, for the hope that was shared to us one day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.